We would like to first acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional gathering grounds for many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast. I'm Brittany Eklund and I'm here, as always, with my co-host Dylan Cave. Joining us today is Dr. Emily LaBelle, a Canadian composer who specialized in concert music composition, the creation of mixed works that employ digital technologies and intermedia concert works. Emily is also affiliate composer with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, and she teaches composition and music theory at McEwen University. Her work has been referred to as intelligent and audacious, beautifully coherent, and impressively subtle and sensuous. Thank you, Emily, so much for joining us here today. Um, so first, can you just please tell us a little bit more about yourself and kind of how you first became interested in the pursuit of music? Well, thanks for having me here today. Um, well, I actually started off um, playing trumpet in public school. And I was really fortunate at the time. I grew up in Montreal and Toronto at a time when there was a lot of support um, in the public school system for the arts and was really involved throughout my school time career, singing in choir, playing trumpet, was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to take some piano lessons. And um, just, it, it was such a huge part of my, my life uh, growing up. And when I finished high school, I couldn't really imagine doing anything else. Um, that being said, I think when you're 18 or 19, it's really, hard to know who you are and what you want to do for the rest of your life. Yes, I think that's a very safe. <laughs> and well, it is. And and we put, I think, a lot of pressure, pressure on ourselves and other people to sort of have that all figured out. And I certainly didn't. But I did know I wanted to do music in some way. Um, so I actually went on and took uh, a year of university in performance, thought I was going to be a trumpet player in an orchestra. Um, and the world had other things in mind for me, so it didn't quite work out that way. I had quite a bad injury my first year, and um, I was in an accident and I have to have surgery on my jaw. And Oh, my gosh. Um, so at the time, I was like, okay, well, you know, music's the only thing I know how to do. What am I going to do? And um, so ended up actually pursuing audio engineering <laughs> and went to school and, and did a program in audio engineering. And then went and worked for a while. So I didn't really come around to composing as a career or, or something that I thought was possible until my mid twenties. And I should say, there's not really a typical path to become a composer. It's not like a violinist who starts playing when they're three years old and then goes to university and studies and goes and plays in an orchestra or becomes a session musician for film music. Composers tend to have these sort of strange ways of coming around to, to music and um, often doesn't happen sort of right away when, again, when, you know, when you're 20, you don't, you don't know what your life is going to hold. Exactly, exactly. No. What it's going to, how things are going to fold out. Like exactly. I, when I was, when I was younger, we, I knew that I wanted to do music, but you know, you don't know the opportunities that are available to you until you kind of start really get, getting out there. And that's just it, Dylan, you touched on it. Um, I didn't even know it was a possibility. Um, and it really took going and working in a recording studio. And I worked in a piano store for a while and did all these things sort of music adjacent and that's where I realized I really, I really wanted to be doing something creative. 
and also realized uh, personality-wise I was not designed to be on stage full-time. So I found the right thing. Composers spend a lot of time in a room by themselves uh, in, in sort of their interior world, and, and that's where I'm happiest. But it took until, yeah, about age 25, and then I went back to university, did an undergrad degree in music, carried on, did a master's degree, um, got really into composition, went and did a residency at the Banff Center, uh, met all these amazing performers, was able to really um, get deep into my craft and and be working with people who are really excellent at what they were doing, and then eventually went on and did a, did a doctorate in composition. So um, not a typical path, but but there isn't really a typical path, I think, for many of the creative industries. And so, like, I guess what, what like, attracted to you to composition mostly was just, like, was it that, that sense of, of being, like, you know, in your own little bubble, creating, being creative, and, like, you get to be alone and, and at your computer or at your, at your creative device? Or was there something else that, that more attracted to that, to, to that? And then, like, moving forward to where you're at now, like, in, in like, concert composition, um, how does how does that work you know like a lot of composers i don't think venture too far into that world because it's such a a daunting thing like could you describe to our listeners maybe what exactly concert composition is yeah that that's a big question i have because i have like dylan's in music he comes from music i have no idea like what concert music composition is and then i was listening to some of your work and i was like wow like this is very different from i think what a non-music person like myself might think of as concert mm-hmm. composition. So, well, we get we get to sort of get into some of the baggage and the history of music in general. Um, so, I guess the best way to describe what I do is I studied classical music, but I also played jazz trumpet and pop music and all these other different genres. Um, but my main sort of focus in my musical career has been music that's followed from the tradition of Western art music. And so we get into all these problematic ways of how we describe what we do. Um, Some people use the term art music, and and then that sort of implies that other music isn't artistically driven and maybe more commercially driven. Um, So concert music for me describes uh, an intention of listening. So for the most part, I'm creating music where people are going to come to a space, whether that be a concert hall or um, some other sort of venue there for the intention to listen to that music. So it's, it's, it's for entertainment, but intentional. Um, But I should also say, I think there used to be these very clear delineations of like, oh, you're a film composer, or you play jazz music, or you write pop arrangements. And the exciting thing about being a composer right now is all those lines are blurred. <laughs> so I also write electronic music. I just did music for a kid's show um, that's in collaboration with the Toronto Zoo. Uh, so a lot of my music is concert music, but that's certainly not the only thing I do. Mm-hmm. And certainly my music doesn't just draw from classical music references. I wrote a piece that derived um, rhythms from a Beastie Boys tune that I like. And I listened to a lot of electronic music and... Um, I think more and more composers are not feeling like, oh, I'm just a concert music composer or I'm just a film composer or I just play pop music or jazz or whatever that is. So um, you have to be in this industry. You can't, you know, 
I'd like to think that we could be, you know, just in our one little lane and get get enough work to really sustain ourselves, but that's just not the case, I don't think, in, in most cases. And creatively, you want to explore different things as well. For sure. And then as a, as a composer who comes from a tradition where really like 100 years ago, there was no women composers being recognized, uh, let alone BIPOC composers, or it was like a very narrow view of what a composer was when we look at the tradition of classical music. Um, and so now all those boundaries are being pushed down as well. So why not embrace all the genres? Why not um, acknowledge that even though we come from this tradition that was quite exclusionary, that we can still draw from that history and tradition and honor it, but also challenge it and expand um, the meaning and the sounds that come from it? Yeah, like something that really struck me as as really interesting was some of the pieces that I was able to like find and access. Um, I saw some like interesting uses of instruments um, that struck me as like really brilliant. Um, I think one was using the hand to actually dampen like the sound of piano keys. Um, I think one guy had a trumpet and he was just kind of like tapping it on the bottom um, or the piece where you had three people and they were rotating through instruments. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can link to those in the episode description if you want, but I, can you tell us a little bit about how you learned or why you like to incorporate like interesting applications mm -hmm. of instruments? Would that be the right way to put that? <laughs> well, I, there's sort of two, two threads there, perhaps. There's uh, what we would call extended techniques. So using instruments in sort of surprising and unconventional ways. And then I also do things like uh, in an orchestra piece I wrote, I have one of the percussionists playing harmonica or I did a piece, uh, I describe it as the least COVID-friendly piece of music ever written, but this is before the pandemic. Um, uh, it's for chamber ensemble, but I distribute kazoos to all the audience members. And then oh my they have moments where they play kazoos and make bug, bug sounds with the chamber ensemble. Um, <laughs> That's brilliant. That one was a lot of fun. And I think back on it now, and you could never do that piece again, right? Because you're literally handing out things that people put into their mouth and, and play in a room together. Um, I hope we can get back to that because I want to see people just wailing just, on the just kazoo. spitting on each other with <laughs> <Yeah>. kazoos. <laughs> it, it was pretty delightful. Just, just, you know, also sort of breaking down some of those barriers of being a polite audience member where you don't make noise and you listen attentively and then, you know, you're sort of encouraging people to I make noise. That so recently as a, as a tangent, um, we just recently had, um, uh, a music department concert for our contemporary combos, and uh, since no no public audience was at the performance, and we were live streaming it and all those things, um, it had almost a pub vibe where our our concert hall is, um, you know, not so pub vibey. You know, it's very like you said. You know, you're sitting there with your hands crossed and you're enjoying the music that's happening, but you know, it's kind of forbidden to to make any. Uh, out of turn noises, but where the, the this performance was really unique because it seemed like everybody there was friends and they they all knew each other. And you know when funny things would happen on stage during a performance, everybody would just go crazy in the audience. And it had this really cool vibe to it, and I really enjoyed that. Um, so I, I do like challenging those ideas of of how an audience should ought to act. And classical music has a bit of a bad reputation for um, things being a little proper and people sort of 
having to know decorum of when to clap and when to stand up and when to sit still. And it's fun to challenge some of that and just to challenge people to engage in a piece of music in a different way. So I always like inviting in little elements of surprise or fun. And sometimes it's just a creative choice. Like I want this color or this sound and um, how am I going to get it? Well, 50 kazoos or uh, percussionist playing a harmonica. So you get that like lovely reedy sound coming out of the back of the orchestra. Um, and usually if you ask the right way with a smile on your face, performers are more than happy to kind of go there with you. Can you tell us a little bit about working with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra um, and kind of how you connected with them and what mm. that's been like? So my position there is called affiliate composer. Um, and that's a position that they, they have for, I guess you would call us early career composers. So by early career in the compositional world, it's like kind of under the age of 50 sometimes, sometimes under the age of 30, depending on the opportunity, but, um, just sort of acknowledging that it's a very long apprenticeship period. Um, to get that skill, especially writing for something like orchestra. So there are a few major symphonies in Canada that have these sort of roles. The Vancouver Symphony and the Winnipeg Symphony both have them and then the Toronto Symphony. So the position, I get to write pieces for the orchestra, which is pretty exciting. So I get a commission a year from them. And then there's also an educational component. So I get to be mentored by um, the other composer on staff there, by the the artistic director who conducts the orchestra. I also get mentored by the artistic admin staff. So I've learned a lot about um, all the sort of behind the scenes things and how an orchestra runs, everything from marketing to artistic decisions. And then I'm also involved in artistic planning. So I have some say into, um, well, the pieces we choose for programming and I do some mentorship for young composers. So I run education workshops, um, help young composers learn to write for orchestra, those sorts of things. So it's quite a quite a broad range of yeah. things. And people sort of assume, oh, you're affiliate composer, you just you get to write for the orchestra and hear your pieces played, but it's it's more involved in that. Sounds a lot more involved than <laughs> Yeah, that. yeah. So I I do a lot of things over Zoom and then I'm in Toronto for certain weeks to work with the orchestra. Um, and then my time is up, I guess, at the end of this year. So it's not a long-term position. It's initially a two-year contract and then they extended it for another two years. So I was there for four years of total. Amazing. Um, but then of course it should benefit other composers. A friend of mine who m might've been a student of yours um, mm -hmm. um, now has an opportunity and has been working with the symphony as well in Toronto. So he was a student of Alan Gilliland who... Um, moved on to be Dean and yeah. then I, I got his job and that's how I ended up here basically. But um, we do a score reading workshop once, once a year. And so emerging composers apply for this opportunity with their score and we put together a jury, which this is like one of the things that I organize and we select four to five young composers a year and they come to Toronto and they spend a day with the orchestra. They get their pieces read by the orchestra for most of them, this is the first time they've heard their music played by a, a live That's a symphony orchestra. That's a huge moment for a composer. I call it Christmas for composers. <laughs> it's it's there's nothing like it. Um, so a really valuable learning opportunity for them, but also just 
kind of amazing to sit in a concert hall and hear your music come to life when you've worked on it for so long, you know, score, score writing or working on your computer to figure out all your sounds. So this year, one of our selected composers is a recent McEwen grad. So that was really lovely for me to meet someone who came out of this program. His piece was amazing. He was so professional. He reflected so well on McEwen, but also just showed what hard work in this program all the skills you learn and then you get to go on to opportunities like that. Yeah. And pushing for those opportunities. Um, you know, and anyone that doesn't know Joel, uh, he's in a band with, uh, Sauvé McBean, who is there, they're a band called 1062. Um, they just moved to Toronto and are doing big things there. And uh, this is another great opportunity that, that is like, you know, you work for something and you, yeah. you're slowly making that happen from where, we didn't know where we wanted to be when we were 20. And now these paths that we're taking are now things are starting to come together for them. Yeah. And, and to just be open to, to what's possible, you know, Joel's a really great example of writing a piece for a classical orchestra, but also doing pop music and playing arrangements and um, just being open to all these different possibilities. And you don't know where you'll necessarily end up, but if you start closing those doors right away, you uh you miss out on things 100 percent um so to pull it back what's the experience like working with the toronto orchestra participating in that intense creativity and working as a composer and teacher here like that's a lot going on mm -hmm. it's challenging at times for sure um I think when you're early on in your career, you say yes to everything <laughs> like that's just what you do guilty um and I did that for a long time this project, yes. And you just, you find a way to do it. You find the time to do it. Um, and then when you transition to being a full-time teacher, you really have to change your mindset because you can't say yes to everything. And your first priority is teaching, but you need to make time for your research or your creative scholarship because that informs your teaching and it makes you a better teacher and um, connects your students to the industry. So I won't say I always get it right. It, it is a bit of a struggle sometimes to balance. I find I say no to a lot more creative projects now, and I'm a little more selective in what I say yes to. It takes me longer to finish things. So um, projects I started this summer, I probably won't finish until sometime next year. So the, the, the overall sort of cycle or scope of a, of a project takes a longer time. And I will admit sometimes... Um, I find that hard because it takes a certain mindset to get into the space to do your work. And then you get distracted by emails and you need to do grading and get your lesson plans together and office hours, office hours. <laughs> and so sometimes there's really long days. Sometimes you don't get it right. Um, summer ends up being a time where I kind of get caught up on a lot of curriculum design and, and doing things that there isn't always time to do during the school year, but it's good to be busy. I like all the things I do. You, you just, you have to be really organized and, and, um, plan carefully, but also look after yourself. Right. So there's things that are non-negotiable. Um, like Pray tell. <laughs> every morning I get up and walk the dog for an hour. That's, that's an hour in the morning. That's for my health. You have to do those things, right? And do you listen to music or podcasts? I don't. We just walk. We just walk. Okay. It's a time to, to turn off. Uh, coming from a music background of constantly be, being surrounded by it, you might be completely different than I am, but I know that it's seldom time do I get to sit and enjoy music 
when I'm being surrounded by it all the time. It's so true. Um, it's often silent at home. There's, you know, people put on radio or TV as sort of background noise and, and I often find I need the silence. So the walking too is sort of like, you can listen to the magpies and, and, uh, which just, in itself is I love music. I'm you know, such we talk. A huge fan. <laughs> we, we talk about music in the real world and talk about music concrete and and all these other um, composition methods and things like that, where you know we're taking real sounds from around us and mm-hmm. and composing them in such a way that they become music. Um, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk a little bit more with uh, Dr. Emily Labelle. Cineholic is the OG gourmet cinnamon roll bakery, and they're all completely plant-based. Oh yeah, vegan, baby. Honestly, I'm not a vegan, but I appreciate a plant-based product, especially when you would never be able to tell. That's it. That's the ad. Get out. Try them. They're great. Um, Peanut butter icing. What more can I say? Welcome back to Research Recasted. My name's Dylan Cave. I'm here with Brittany Eklund and Dr. Emily LaBelle. Thank you so much for being with us here again. Um, I would just like to talk about some of your your most recent works and kind of tell us what you're working on and how to um, just, just tell us a little bit about your most recent projects. Sure. So maybe I'll start with two things that are finished on my end composing that'll be coming out in the next little while and then move to some some things that are in progress. Um, so I think I actually touched on this maybe earlier. I just finished working on a kids show. So this was something sort of different for me. Um, the Toronto Symphony Orchestra has put together a project called Zoophony and it was all filmed at the Toronto Zoo. So it's all pieces of music inspired by the animals there and they videotaped, you know, the double basses playing with the drafts and all sorts of fun stuff like that. Um, My role in it was uh, I wrote the music for a story called Kiwis Can't Play the Violin. And it's a story about a kiwi bird overcoming his obstacles to learn how to play the violin so that he can play in the zoophony. That's adorable. (laughs) Oh my goodness. It was pretty fun. Um, so Pierre Rivard, who's uh, one of the people who works in the education department at the Toronto Symphony, wrote the story. And then I had the honor of writing music for that. So I was in Toronto a few weekends ago for the filming of it. We filmed it at the at the zoo. And they're just I just saw the first cut of um, the video. So they're just putting it all together. And that's coming out this year for families and for school groups to watch the video online. Will that be available or could we potentially link to that? We sure could. Oh, um, wonderful. You could I find think, a link of that in the episode description. Yes. Or uh, go to tso.ca. Um, and then they're also doing a live version of that for their young people's concerts during this concert season. So there's a narrator telling the story and the orchestra on stage. And it was a lot of fun and certainly uh, an uplifting thing to work on this year. And then I also finished a large piece for orchestra for the same group um, as part of my work there. And that's being premiered April 2022. And um, Which is not too long after this episode is airing. No. So if you happen to be in Toronto, um, they'll be playing it there. And then probably on my website, I'll link to a recording of that. So those have been um, two sort of recent projects 
um, orchestra pieces always take a very long time to write. <laughs> so then um, I've got some newer projects on the go. I'll give a little shout out to the Canada Council for the Arts. Thank you so much for the funding. It's allowed me to hire and work with a bunch of local musicians. So um, it's really nice to have that support to be able to pay people for their expertise and their time. 100%. And I'm working with a local group called the Ultraviolet Ensemble. They're actually named after um, or in honor of Violet Archer, who was a very important Canadian woman composer. And I'm writing a series of pieces for their chamber ensemble with electronics. And I'm working with um, what are called tactile transducers. So otherwise known as bass shakers. So if you think when you go to a movie and you actually feel the bass shaking, well, they make these now for your home theater attach them to your couch you can put them to your couch and then on your underneath your couch and then when you're watching a movie um things shake you know base shakers. base shakers okay. so they're they're called tactile transducers because you actually feel the sound waves um so i'm using those to attach to the berry saxophone in the ensemble and then attaching those tactile transducers to different surfaces like timpanis and snare drums so you get these sort of neat resonant frequencies and um textures so That's i'm writing so cool it's pretty fun my my house looks pretty neat right now because there's all this sort of cabling everywhere in the living room and i'm attaching i would love to get a picture of that that would be so awesome I to will. post on our socials i i've been so interested in 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 those tactile transducers um ever since uh like drummers uh, as drummers we use them all the time mm-hmm. we attach them to our throne and with our in-ear monitors because you know oftentimes when you're using in-ear monitors on stage or wherever it's it's uh challenging t- to translate a big rock sound. I come from a predominantly rock background where, you know, you need a little bit of something to move you. Mm -hmm. And these, these transducers are great for that. And then I found out that you can get them to put on platforms where your bass player can stand on the platform and gives them the the bass that they need. It's so cool. So I'm really excited to how you're now using them as a composition method. Yeah. It's, um, so it's all sort of a big experiment right now, which is sort of the fun part too, right? Working working with them and working through sort of uh, creative problems will inform the piece. But I like using things that um, they weren't really intended to be used this way. But then there's, you know, all these, like as Dylan's saying, drummers use them, bass players use them. Um, there's people working with them. Um, so people who are uh, hard of hearing can have a tactile experience with music in the room they have the body packs too body packs there's um something called the emoji chair where there's sort of these vibrations along your spine so there's all these different applications for something that was made um really with the intention of having your car shake to big bass sounds or listening to a loud yeah or listening to a movie um so that's that's sort of a big project. There'll be a series of pieces I'm writing for them. Um, we'll be actually working in, in Allard Hall next semester a bit to workshop some of the pieces, and then we're doing a recording of them. So at some point next year, a new album of chamber music with Edmonton musicians will, will drop, and I don't know the exact date yet. And when we say next year, we mean 2022. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because this, this year. will air. <laughs> that is so interesting. I'm so excited to see more of that. And when it comes, uh, please send me a note. I would love to just come and sit in on a session. Um, 
you know, seeing these in action because, uh, you know, some of some something that I've been trying to think of for a while and my research that I try to do as a student right now is primarily based in immersive audio um, is tr- how the, the easiest way to translate this stuff is binaural with headphone mixes instead of trying to get hundreds of speakers into like a 360 dome or something. So I- incorporating uh, one of those tactile transducers into this would 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 create so many more opportunities for this immersive audio idea that I have. So I'm gonna I'm gonna think about <laughs> well, that a lot more. There you go. Great. Thank, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So I guess kind of you you have this work that's now with tactile transducers. So the physical shake and the boom and the bass. Um, but your work also uh, relates to resonance and variances in color. Can you talk a little bit about um, those aspects as well? For sure. Um, So I think when people think about music um, and they find out I'm a composer, they go, oh, what does your music sound like? And it's the hardest thing for composers to answer. We're just awkward folks who... Which piece do you mean? Yeah, (laughs) who like to spend time in a room by themselves with a piano and then we have to talk about our work. Um, It's often very difficult for us to sort of put that into tangible meaning. And then I think probably the the music that's most familiar to people is uh, music that has a distinct melody line and some sort of harmonic accompaniment. So um, my music focuses less on those elements of music and more on other aspects of music. So texture being like all your rhythm, rhythmic choices or um, like the tactile sensation of what a snare drum sounds like. Um, so sort of linking some of these ideas with a more visual sense and then color being, uh, focusing on, well, really the color of an instrument, right? So how can you create something that's musically interesting with different, um, instruments playing different sort of sounds or like a collage of sounds, if you think about a sort of visual collage. So sort of thinking that way um, and approaching composition that way instead of developing a melody and and harmony. So I still think about melody and harmony, but they're not sort of the the, the primary aspects of my sound world when I'm starting to create. I'm, I'm thinking more about color, texture, and then things like melody and harmony. Um, so it sort of helps contextualize that, you know, when you sit and listen to a piece of music of mine, you won't necessarily have like this one thing that's out in the foreground that you really listen to in the way you would if it was a pop piece and there's someone singing lyrics. That's really what you're drawn to. And that's really the focus of the piece. Uh, something that I, again, noticed in in some of your work that I found on the Internet um, was the role that silence played in a lot of your compositions, um, which I thought was really beautiful and kind of, you know, you're, you're waiting with bated breath to hear what's going to come next. So can you talk a little bit about working with silence as a composer? Mm-hmm. Well, I think if we sort of relate it to another of the arts in theater, um, stopping motion on stage is really powerful too, right? Um, It draws the attention in and changes the context very profoundly in a way. So musically, if there's always things going on and nothing stops, um, there's not really time for reflection. And 
I think as a listener, when I'm an audience member, I want moments of sort of calm or stasis. And I really want to find that balance when I'm composing. I'm thinking about the experience of the audience member and those moments of silence are, are important to sort of collect or um, work in juxtaposition to a really busy moment. Um, but also there's, there's moments where I think I work um, to sort of push up against some of the norms of music in the tradition that I come from. So in classical music, if you go and listen to a Beethoven symphony, there's a very clear trajectory to the piece three quarters of the way through. There's like a big loud climactic moment. The audience kind of knows that's going to happen. We all expect it. And then our expectations are met. So for me, I want to create moments where expectations are met, but sometimes I want to subvert those and have something different happen. And a lot of these things you're talking about uh, are like cadences and specific points that audible cues that tell the audience, okay, this part is done. We are moving on to the next part or the piece is finished. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, so things like harmony, um, you know, an audience member kind of knows what to expect when certain things happen harmonically or, you know, when the guitar solo comes in, we know where we're in a piece of music. So I think there's always this really interesting balance of when you play into those expectations and when you subvert them and finding that balance. And so silence is like one of those ways you can sort of build that in a little bit. Almost as a tension piece, even though silence, there's no, you know, there's no... Um, audible thing. I guess silence is audible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just kind of interesting. It's it's like the light theory that there is no darkness. There's only a lack of light. There is no silence. There's only a lack of sound. Mm -hmm. So that silence in itself can be tension. It can be a release of tension, all these different things. So I find that yeah, mm -hmm. extremely interesting on how you utilize those uh, in your work. So you're talking about tension and silence, but also I noticed in some of your work, a kind of frenzy, like something you might hear in a horror movie. Um, what kinds of feelings and moments do you find motivation for your pieces in? That's so interesting. You touched on the, the frenzied aspect, because I think more often than not, people talk about stasis in my music and um, a sort of pa patience or like a very um, sort of controlled way of moving through. So um, I think you found the pieces where occasionally I, I get a little more loud or ruckus. <laughs> <laughs> um, now I've lost, I've lost my train of thought in terms of what the question was. I was just wondering, um, because yes, there was like moments of silence, um, and then really beautiful, like poignant, like pluck moment, but sometimes you get this kind of frenzied like moment and then it calms down. And I guess for me, as someone with like an anxious mind, it really reminded me of kind of that like manic ebb and flow of like a blank, like you go blank and then all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I have 48 things in my head. Um, so I was kind of wondering, I guess, just like your inspiration or motivation or where did these compositions come from? So a lot of my music recently has been very influenced by landscape. Um, 
Which is brilliant. <laughs> so how we move through it, how we interact with it, sounds that come from it. Um, I can give you an example. The very first piece I wrote for the Toronto Symphony, um, I wrote it after, well, when I moved to Edmonton. So that summer I drove from Montana to Toronto and then drove from Toronto to Edmonton. So I spent a lot of time in a car driving through the prairies and then wrote a piece about it because there is something almost hypnotic about if you've done that drive, you know, um, plays back as a time lapse in your head. It's just, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's your, your heart rate's different when you drive through there and the way you sort of see the world going past is different. Um, and I wanted to capture that sensation in, in a piece of music. So that's a sort of like hypnotic way you're in just in the car all day. And there's sort of like all the dry grasses and the prairies in the summer. And, um, so that's, that's like, uh, a fairly recent example of m my sort of experience in a landscape and wanting to sort of convey, I guess, some of the sort of emotional experience of that, but also some of the physical world and the landscape. Um, I'm trying to think of some other examples of that, but a lot of recent works have sort of tied into time in the mountains, um, bird watching. That camping. sounds so peaceful compared to the the tension and and the busyness of yeah. all of it. Nature is kind of like quiet, but then frenzy, yeah. but then tense, and then yeah. But then there's also the other side of that, right? And we live in a, in a fairly busy city. We have all these industrial sounds. And if you sort of follow the history of classical music or really most of music change quite, um, quite pronounced in a pronounced way at when the industrial revolution happened. So if you listen, like again, to go back to Beethoven and he wrote, you know, the pastoral symphony and you can kind of picture Beethoven frolicking yeah. in fields <laughs> and it's so beautiful and heavenly. And then you think about a composer post 1900 and uh, maybe they live in London, England. They're like their whole sound world, totally different. And um, then you think of composers sort of mid 1900s having lived through two world wars and the sorts of sounds that exist then. So if you kind of draw that to present day composers, yes, I have all these sort of lovely experiences of being out in the natural world, but I also bike into work every day or drive into work every day and get car horns honked at me <laughs> and um, have all the sort of sounds and experiences uh, that I think do relate to sort of anxiety and frenzy. And, and those certainly influence work too. If you think about a composer, they're, they're a musical storyteller. So they're telling us, any composer is sort of telling us what it's like to be alive today and their experiences of that. So um, there will be those juxtapositions because we live in a world that has a lot of these very sort of striking juxtapositions in our, not only in our sound world and what we experience, but um, just in our, in everything in our, in our day-to-day -day lives. I really like the term sound world. A lot, because you're right. We have a bubble of, of sounds. It's like my cat. If the ice cream truck drives outside of the house, the cat runs behind the toilet or hides under the bed. But you turn on a blender in the morning and he's a foot away, he doesn't bat an eye mm -hmm. because he's used to that noise. And the ice cream truck is like a terrifying <laughs> thing. But like, yes, our sound worlds. 
mm-hmm. is such a great concept that I have never heard before. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. And sound, sound world, soundscapes, all those like different, it's a different thing, but all together. So I'm really interested in like maybe talking about a little bit about your composition process and uh, you know, I'm sure it's different based on what you're doing. So maybe compare like what we're what we're thinking of, like if you're commissioned by the symphony to 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 compose something there, what the process might be like, and then something for yourself. Like if you want to be really creative and just like really do something that you're. I don't want to say that you're not passionate about the other things because you 100% are. But I know in my creative process, there's some things that are really dear to me, and then there's some things that are like a little bit more work that take a little bit more thought where I feel like the creative process for me when I'm creating stuff for myself is like such a different process. It definitely is. Uh, So composers are commissioned essentially. We're commissioned to write a piece of music. And um, when we're commissioned, there's a lot of stipulations that come with that. So if an ensemble approaches me there's usually, oh, we're doing this concert. We want to include a piece by you. And they'll tell you what else is on the program. So that's going to influence you. And then there's usually, you know, time constraints. You're told what instruments are available. So there's all these really sort of pragmatic, practical <laughs> considerations that drive the creative process. So um, if is you're it told- like a checkbox thing, you have like 20 <laughs> things that have to be included. Well, you know, you make a little list. Okay, it has to be 10 minutes. I'm writing for string quartet. Um, They're going to be touring this to these different places. These other pieces are going to be on the concert. Um, So all those things come in. And then then you kind of dig into, okay, what do I want the piece to be about? All those other things. Whereas, um, well, this tactile transducer piece, for example, um, that really started as a I fleshed out my ideas because I wrote a grant. That's always a good way to figure out what you really want a project to be about. But that Grants was all are just business plans. They just you, yeah, it just it, you got to know what you want to do before you do it. I guess exactly. And things might change, but it, it, it's a very helpful to just defining your goals and what you want to do. So I knew I wanted to work with these in some way, and then um, really you still want to enforce some parameters on yourself, or I like to call them creative restrictions, because if you don't have any parameters, then where do you start? And it's just sort of crippling. Um, I'm taking notes right now, just so everybody (laughs) knows I'm taking notes on this. So I tend to sort of impose my own restrictions, Um, whether that be, okay, it is going to be a 12 minute piece or I'm doing an album's worth of music. So then there's sort of a a time constraint. Um, Some of it's also pragmatic, you know, can you afford to hire 10 musicians? Uh, Where are you going to record that? Um, And then things like, um, who do I really want to work with? Who, who do I like working with? Working with nice people counts for a lot. And when they're your projects, you have total control over that. So of course you're going to work with people that you feel you can trust artistically, you can take risks with, that are enjoyable to be in a space with, that you you know respect their artistry and their musicianship and you feel respected. So probably not pe- things people think about when they think about a composer, but all those things are sort of first and foremost. Um, in terms of the actual creative process, it's probably not that exciting. Um, <laughs> or it might be. So I'm very excited to hear it. Well, I, I think people have this sort of romantic idea of a composer sitting down in this lightning bolt of um, 
inspiration hits them and they write it all down but actually with a quill like yes, by candlelight. yes by all, candlelight. I, all i can picture is a giant rubbish bin full of crumpled up score paper <laughs> like that's what i think of yeah really it's just me sitting at my desk with my notebook and my pencil and sort of um sketching out some ideas of you know sounds i might want to explore or um how long the piece is going to be or what the structure might look like and then sitting down at the piano figuring out some things. Um, I still do most of my writing by, by hand. So by that, I mean, I don't sit at my computer right away. I actually find the computer kind of impedes um, creative thought. It, it's sort of like this box I, I imposing agree. things. I would also third that yeah. motion. Yeah. I wish I had, I, one thing that I really wanted to invest in was just like a piano that just was a standalone by itself. That's all it did um, because the only thing I have right now is like a MIDI keyboard. So I have to go into my computer mm -hmm. and it's like, oh, I don't really like that sound. And so I spend two hours before I even start composing and I don't compose a lot. But uh, when I do, it's like, oh, I get really attracted to certain sounds. And then that sound becomes my inspiration. Mm -hmm. and, and sort of going back to that, like tactile sensation, the experience of an acoustic instrument um, is very, very different than a sound coming out of your computer speakers. So actually I have, it's not a very fancy piano, but I have a junky old upright piano in my office at home. And I, and I work on that because an acoustic instrument just does something different for the creative process. Um, but really it's just me sitting in a room, thinking through ideas, shuffling around, drinking some tea, coming back. Um, it's slow. It's frustrating at first. Um, there's not a lot of tangible results right away. And then you get into actually putting notes on the page. And then at some point I have enough that I'm ready to take it over to the computer, which is where I do my actual notation. So making a score in software. And if I'm working with electronics, um, I work in a pro program called Logic most of the time. So I do most of my creative work in there and then Pro Tools for sort of more technical things. So certainly technology assists my um process but it doesn't it like doesn't initiate it um and so uh, are you uh, in your creative process you you know you have your you have your upright piano at home but you can probably just hear these in your head and write them down absolutely for, which is not very common in in you know composers starting out i don't think you've you've touched on something really really important um and it and it's very much part of our compositional training we sort of liken it to you have to have like an orchestra in your head and you kind of have to train train this sort of inner imagination to hold that in your head because playing playing a chord at the piano sounds like a piano and it gives you some information about harmony but it's not going to tell you the color of what a, a violin section would sound playing like that you have to have your own sound library <laughs> pretty, installed pretty in much. your head and and you have to be able to make decisions about things like balance and how things will be heard and that takes time and experience. Um, so many, many hours sitting in rehearsals as a musician and observing that as a player. And then as a composer, spending a lot of time. So back in my day, you went to the library and you signed out the CDs and you'd sit there in the library with a score and listening to recordings and kind of making the, the connections between um, what you're hearing in the recording and what, what notations you have to put on the page to to have those sounds happen. Um, so 
composers starting out don't necessarily have that yet. And it's frustrating and it's, it takes time and a lot of, a lot of energy. Um, but all the composers I know who kind of get to a certain stage, they do that by spending a lot of time doing what we call sort of score study where we're looking, we're looking and we're listening and sort of figuring those out and kind of building up your musical imagination. So you can hold that all in your head. Well, I I can definitely look at a lead sheet and, and, and know what I'm looking at, but if it came to a score, I wouldn't know where to begin. This kind of ties me into where I wanted to go on a little bit of a tangent and talk a little bit about something that's uh, kind of exciting in the, in the ethos that is McEwen. And we have our own record label. Um, We just finished up our first competition of the year. Um, In the process of talking about this competition, um, you were involved in, in some of the, the consultations and how do we adjudicate the composers who are submitting these? Mm-hmm. Do we just ask for a lead sheet? Do we ask for a score? Um, and then um, I, you talked a little bit about, well, you know, maybe some of the panelists, you know, I, I can read a score and I can visualize this in my head, but I don't know if all of our panelists will do that. And do you want to, mm-hmm. sp- can you speak a little bit about that process? Yeah, well, I think... I think you the the conversation was sort of how how do we end up choosing these pieces of music if some people are going to submit a lead sheet and some people are going to submit a recording and um I think I I was commenting the fact that I can I can look at a score of music or a lead sheet and know sort of musically how that's going to sound. And I would rather look at that and sort of imagine it in my head than listen to um, a a mock-up of that done with not very good computer instruments. Um, You know, I can imagine how humans would play that rather than sort of... um, yeah, the computer. And you don't, you don't want to adjudicate them on a horrible recording. Exactly. And and I think I've been I've been on juries in sort of different situations where it's very easy to sort of fall prey to um someone having a little bit more technical ability and so they'll they'll submit like a pretty polished recording um and we get sort of enticed by the production value rather than actually the quality of the the content of the songwriting. And then there might be someone who wrote this amazing song, but they don't have quite the technical skill yet to, to create sort of like a demo version of it. And so it, it's always very challenging to judge things on, on equal footing when you're kind of not presented with quite the same thing. Um, so it's, it's always a challenge when we're, when we're doing those things with Bent River. Uh, I think that's so interesting, and I think it's such a cool learning experience, especially for young composers, um, you know, being able to create something that's going to be pressed onto this specific project's going to be pressed onto vinyl, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I think that's, it's such a such a cool thing. Um, so if you want to learn a little bit more about Bent River Records, they have uh, competitions uh, regularly, so you can go to bentriverrecords.com and check out a little bit more about that. This has been Research Recasted. We're here with Emily LaBelle, and we'll be right back. So, yeah, uh, going a little bit back to the beginning, um, our name is Research Recasted, in case y'all didn't know. Um but we haven't really talked about research per se yet. So people might be very familiar with the kind of like PhD uh, research that happens in the disciplines like science and literature. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what the process is like um, 
for your master's PhD in composition and what research looks like in music and composition? Absolutely. So it really depends um, where you end up going to school. Some of the programs look quite different. Uh, So for myself, my master's degree, a two-year program, was mostly coursework. And then um, I did a research project. And what that looked like there was a series of compositions and then a paper that went along with it. So a research paper that contextualized those compositions. So um, being able to point to certain techniques or movements in music and situating your music amongst your contemporaries and also um, in terms of the history of the discipline. So I have a nice, somewhere in my bookshelf at home, I have that nicely bound, all the compositions, the recording of them, and then this research paper that went along with it. Um, Other programs do different things depending on where you go. Uh, The program that I was in was quite focused on ethnomusicology and composition was a component of that. That sounds, sorry, what is ethnomusicology? (laughs) So we have an ethnomusicologist here at McEwen as well. So um, (laughs) musicology looking at... um, Oh gosh, I'm never good at describing these things. So musicology, uh, most musicologists specialize in researching a specific area of music. Um, so you might be a specialist in Beethoven piano sonatas okay. or music of the second Viennese school post-World War II, like very specific, super nerdy, spend your life learning about, you know, and describing the music of a specific composer or movement. And then ethnomusicologists look at that within the context of culture as well. Um, So the program I was at had like a very strong research bent on um, that side of things. So sort of looking at culture and um, also looking at music beyond sort of the history of Western art music. Mm -hmm. Um, So different from other programs. And then for my doctorate, I went to the University of Toronto, the Faculty of Music there. And there, like most doctoral programs, you do some coursework. So I did coursework in um, a variety of subjects that included music composition, um, things like counterpoint and harmony. Um, And then in most doctoral programs, you do some sort of comprehensive exam. So a comprehensive exam or major field study exams, you're, you're doing some sort of big test and it's a very big test that sort of, um, demonstrates your expertise in your area. So in my program, they relate that to a research project. So you do a large research project on subject of your choice. I did mine on CBC radio and I looked at the history of the CBC radio and the role it played in shaping repertoire of Canadian composers. So not so much now because the CBC has really changed, but CBC radio had a very large influence in um, supporting Canadian talent to broadcasting their works, to commissioning Canadian composers. And so I spent two years interviewing all these uh, important figures from the history and put together sort of this whole history from about 1940 to present day of Canadian classical music and how they supported the development of 
a Canadian sound essentially, and then did um, my exams based on that. So I had to have knowledge not only of classical music, but of um, all of Canadian music and and what that entails. I, I find that so interesting. You talked a little bit about CBC and how it's changed. Um, are, could you talk about a little bit about what you mean? So CBC, well, there's like all the different components of the CBC. So there's television and radio and yeah. such. Um, maybe I'll just touch on why I decided to do this project. For sure. I... I, I feel like I'm a product of the CBC. Like I grew up um, coming home every day that like the radio was on in the house. And um, I learned so much about music from what I heard on the radio after school or on weekends. So a lot of classical music, a lot of pop music. Um, and I would say for a long time, the CBC was probably on in a lot of households. Um, and was very much part of the cultural fabric of Canada and I think kept us connected in many ways. You know, geography of this country is very large. So with all that programming, um, the CBC had to invest money into creating content essentially because a certain amount of their content had to be Canadian. So they went and recorded being, being federally funded is exactly part of the stipulation exactly so and actually all radio stations have to have a certain amount of Canadian content on them even commercial ones um, they invested a lot of money in recording live concerts in producing studio recordings to create all this content for for broadcast um, so I feel indebted to them because I think a large part of why I became a musician is sort of the awe they inspired in me as a child uh, and it was free and you know regardless of sort of socioeconomic background if you had a radio in the house you could listen to all this stuff um, at some point um, and I'm trying to think of specific dates here the CBC um, slowly became defunded so less and less money was put into it and they had to make decisions about where to put their money. And so less and less money went into producing content. So they used to have commissions and contests for young composers and recording concerts. And most of that went away. Um, so, you know, they still produce content. They still do things for TV. They do podcasts. But there's not such a strong... Um, support of art music, Canadian music, um, music that's maybe driven sort of for artistic reasons more than commercial reasons. Um, so a lot of that money went away. And then another sort of component of that was they decided to sort of open up their programming, which I actually think was a very healthy decision, like acknowledging that maybe not all Canadians want to listen to 10 hours a day of classical music programming. So uh, in opening up the genres that they support and broadcast, it kind of changed some of the funding as well. So there's been a bunch of changes that have happened there. Some of those politically motivated, some of those motivated by um, budgets and some of those motivated by just uh, more democratic choices around the sorts of music and entertainment that they were putting on the airwaves. Uh, you talk about the CBC having used to have been this place that gave space and support to young composers, for example. So I'm just kind of wondering where young or budding composers can go now for that kind of support 
or um, to be seen or to be heard? There's a lot of support for young composers now, um, just in different ways. So I can give a little shout out because two of our McEwen affiliated composers got selected for this one. Um, The Canadian League of Composers does a workshop every year called Pivot, where they select composers from across Canada and they're paired with a composer that gives them mentorship and they write a piece for an ensemble and get that piece played. And um, that is just one example of the sort of, a lot of organizations have just stepped up and and see the value in offering these opportunities for young composers. So there's a lot of these sort of cross Canada calls where they'll um, put out a call and early composer, early career composers can apply and then they'll put together a jury and select them. So two McEwen composers, are are featured this this year in in that particular one of the Canadian League of Composers? Can you who? I, are you allowed um, to say? <laughs> there's Mary Alice, who's a recent grad, Mary Alice Conrad, and Karen Donaldson, who's a current composition student here. Both got selected. So fantastic! Both um, of them wonderful people. Both of them wonderful people. They're representing Alberta, and um, I think they're the only two composers from the Prairie region. So go, go Edmonton. Both from us. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Um, so I was really thrilled when I, when I heard that it's just such a great opportunity for them. It's like mentorship and um, I can't overstate the importance of getting to work with live human being musicians and, and getting feedback from them. That's how and you then start also, to build this, yeah, the Cinescape in your or the exactly the, um, the sound libraries in your head. Exactly, hearing hearing your musical decisions come to life. So there's a lot of programs like that in Canada. There's different ensembles that offer them, um, and you you get to hear your pieces played, and that's how you get better. Um, and mentorship, I can't overstate that mm-hmm. hasn't come up yet, but kind, excellent people supporting you in your work is how you get places and all those programs really um, mentorship is at the heart of them. So there are certainly lots of places that have stepped up and seen that need and um, are doing really great things for, for young composers in, in this country. So, you know, there was a generation that certainly benefited from all the support of the CBC. And now um, we're just finding other ways to do that for our community. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, taking it all the way, all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, having the opportunity to say yes to every project and to overload yourself and do a million things um, and get that experience, I think is really important. And so, yeah, maybe we can uh, link to some organizations in the description. If you are a young, budding, new composer who is looking to turn your soundscapes into reality. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. So, uh, a bit about uh, like a part part of your your work here at McEwen. I know that um, the the institution has this really um, really great way of making making sure that you you know you just don't have one job. It's like a million different jobs. But one of the really cool things that you do work with right now is pause. And do you want to talk a little bit about that? I would love to. This is my favorite part. I, we can't looks, leave without uh, talking about the dog. So for those of you who aren't familiar with PAWS, it's uh, Pets Assisting with Student Success. And it's um, a great program here at McEwen. started in the nursing area. A lovely faculty member there um, does actually her research around um, student mental health and ways ways we can support 
students um, feeling good and managing their stress levels. So the, the program started off before I, um, before I was even at McEwen, but when I found out about it, when I arrived here, um, I really wanted to be involved. So I have a lovely dog named Fargo that I got when I was living in Montana and he's from a shelter there and absolutely loves being around human beings. So he uh, is now part of this program. He came, they do a little test to make sure they're, they're qualified to come in. And, <laughs> you do the big test. He yeah. Does the little <laughs> yeah. Dog university. I love yeah. it. So he PhD came, in, in PhD in snuggles. <laughs> so um, we actually call him professor Wiggle sometimes, <laughs> but, uh, he comes in not every day with me, but, uh, he comes in and teaches some classes with me and is around for office hours with, with the intent of supporting students and, and allowing them to have some healthy ways to cope with stress. And, uh, so they have a dog they can interact with, um, in, in my classes and office hours, I often find when he's here, it's very hard to leave the building because uh, we walk down the stairs and then everyone wants to to pet him, of course. So it takes a while sometimes to actually get out of Allard Hall at the end of the day. But um, <laughs> just have to do a lot for that. That's your extra hour at the end of the there day. There you go. So he's yeah, he's become an important part of what I do here. And, and I think a nice a nice way of of you know, we volunteer our time to be part of this, to have our dogs be part of this and to come into the building and, and, and do this. But I, I think it's a really important thing to support. And it's also allowed me to connect with a lot of other students. I've gotten to know a lot more people in the building just from being out and about. And I think that having the dog sort of opens that up for people to come say hi so if you see us on campus, you can say hi. Uh, Fargo's hard to miss. He's about 80 pounds and kind of looks like <laughs> Scooby-Doo, I've been told. So he's he's here once in a while in Allard Hall, especially around exam time, um, making students feel better and accepting all the love. That's amazing. Is there any way that our listeners can support PAWS? If they do a little search um, on the McEwen website, there's a there's a page about PAWS and you can find out some more and um, certainly reach out to them. Amazing. Yeah, uh, I'll link to that in the episode description. Um, and you will have to follow us on Instagram to get pictures of Fargo. <laughs> um, so we're almost out of time. So we just kind of want to open the floor up to you before we leave um, if there's anything we missed that you think is really important, um, any shout outs you want to give, calls for collaboration, calls for funding. We've had a few of those. <laughs> um, basically, the floor is yours. Wow. Well, I think I want to give a little shout out to all our students because none of this would happen without them, right? We're all here in this building to support students learning and to support them seeking their passion and going out and doing great things. And I think I feel very fortunate that we have such amazing students here who are really um, committed and excited about what they do and want to be here and work really hard and then go out into the world and make McEwen proud. So I, I just wanted to say that, that I feel very fortunate um, not only to have those great students, but also great colleagues here and um, still being, I still feel like I'm very new to Edmonton in some ways, just how welcome I've, um, felt walking into this building and, and working with everyone here. And maybe I'll, I'll give a shout out to new music Edmonton 
They are, um, I now sit on the board for New Music Edmonton. One of our grads from the music program now sits on the board. And they are a local organization that puts on concerts of concert music and electronic music. They also have a podcast and they do a lot in the community here to support um, music making. And um, for myself, we're one of the first organizations that reached out and made me feel at home in, in, in the new artistic community here for me. So you can, you can check them out. Um, they have some concerts this year, some live events, some live stream events, and um, some really interesting and different music and much of it local so you can find out what's happening here in Alberta and I'll give a shout out to the Canada Council for the Arts because um, <laughs> they make a lot possible for us and um, support artists being paid for their work which is really 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 important that you know we're all passionate about what we do but when we're doing our our creative scholarship it's important that people are are paid for their expertise and for putting on concerts and those sorts of things because a lot of people don't know it's like, you know, oh, it's a passion project and things like that. But, mm. you know, being paid is a part of it, too. This is our job. And people are very busy. People are. It's too busy. We're too busy to not get paid. <laughs> you need, you know, got to buy dog food. and You got to buy dog food for Professor Wiggles. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think that's all I, you know, uh, other than thank you for having me and letting me oh, thank you. talk about what I do. And if you, if you want to sort of follow up on some of the things we've talked about, I, I do try and keep my website updated. So as, we'll as things come out, I, I try and put them in my recent projects so you can, you can go there and hear about things. There are no dog photos on my website though. Sorry. They'll be on our Instagram. <laughs> follow us on Instagram. <laughs> and what is your website verbally just for? EmilyLabelle.ca. Wonderful. So well, easy. That's everything. That's it. The curtain has closed on this episode of Research Recasted. If today's episode was music to your ears and you're wanting more, please follow up with links in the episode description. Don't forget to jazz up your subscriptions by visiting Research Recasted on your favorite podcasting platforms and find new episodes every two weeks. You can also head over to our Instagram at Research Recasted and give us a like and a follow there too. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Art and Communications at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Dylan Cave and Brittany Eklund. Music and sound design and editing by Dylan Cave with research, copy editing, and scripting by Brittany Eklund. Our executive producer is Ray Burry. 